Welcome to the Industry 4.0 Podcast with Grantech. Hi, and welcome to today's episode of the Industry 4.0 Podcast with Grantech, where we give our audience a look into the world of manufacturing with a focus on the modern technology trends that we commonly call Industry 4.0. Our guests share their thoughts on the subject and their experience around what works and what doesn't and share some tips on how to help you lead a successful digital transformation. My name is Sam Russum. I'm the Senior Director of Smart Manufacturing Solutions at Grant Tech. And today I am joined by James Bernand of 4IR Solutions. James is a 20-plus year veteran in uh, industrial automation and has now turned his focus towards providing infrastructure for manufacturers to help them realize the benefits of the cloud for their plant floor operations. So weaving cybersecurity, operational requirements, and management into 4IR's offerings and providing education and consulting for companies looking to begin their journey into cloud-enabled, highly automated OT infrastructure. 4IR Solutions is a leading provider of cloud-based platform solutions and is a proud Grand Tech partner as well. So, James, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you, Sam. That was uh, that was quite a mouthful there. You, uh, you you described it better than I think I'm capable of, so thank you. Ah, I, I didn't make that up. You provided it to me, so you're very capable of it, whether you realize it or not. I'm, so. not, I'm not sure I personally wrote that, but I will take credit for it. Thank you. <laughs> okay, cool. Yeah, we're, we're going to count it then. <laughs> um, so, so James, you and I have known each other for as long as I've been in the industry, honestly. Um, you and I, I think, know a lot about kind of Industry 4.0 and the technology around it. But um, to catch everybody else up, what are kind of your opinions on on what is Industry 4.0, what makes it work, and kind of what do people need to pay attention to in the space? Yeah, uh, thanks, Sam. Um, I, I think you know, industry 4.0 has been a a bit of a misunderstood term. And I think it's worth maybe talking about what is industry 1.0, 2.0 and 3.0 first, uh, and then describing what industry 4.0 is supposed to be. Um, So industry 1.0 was mechanization. So if you think about water wheels, uh, and you think about common shafts and manufacturing facilities, it's the reason why there was a lot of factories located along riverbanks for transportation and for, um, for, you know, layout and and power. you know, there was there were some constraints to that. And, and really, when you look at Industry 2.0, which was electrification and uh, Heinz being one of the very first facilities to do that, it allowed you to use electrical machines, which meant you could lay things out in a way that made more sense for the production and the material flow, uh, as well as you didn't have to have necessarily locations that were constrained by your source of energy. Um, you move forward another 50 years or so and go to Industry 3.0, maybe 60 years, uh, which was automation. So taking, you know, Earlier on, computer technologies, PLCs and servo drives and replacing uh, replacing relays and replacing complex electrical systems with, you know, much simpler and fl- more flexible, controllable systems. And I, I go back to my early career when I when I first uh, started working in the industry and, and one of the one of the guys who was, you know, a founder and an original programmable controller guy uh, showed me a big block of of wires and said, yeah, this is the first programmable controller I ever used. And, you know, to make, first of all, you had to, you had to have it fabricated. So you built your program, sent it away for fab, it came back. And then if there was any changes you needed to make, you had to get out the soldering iron and you had to to wire jumpers between things. And, you know, we've come a long way since then. And and if you think about automation, you know, as a revolution, it absolutely is. Uh, It's changed the way manufacturing is done. It's, Increase the speed, decrease the cost, made it easier for folks to to scale up. And 
really that's the promise of digitalization as well is you know the the things that have become common in our daily lives the use of the internet and digital technologies and advanced planning systems and ai these are all things that have use cases in manufacturing and really industry 4.0 is all about how how the heck can we make all this stuff work uh, i worry that it's been a little bit weaponized in, in marketing <laughs> these days you know the you know, the, are you industry 4.0 yet is unfortunately something that I think, uh, you know, I see, I see folks struggling to understand what that means. But if you think about it purely in terms of what can provide value, what can change the way you do business and how can you apply, you know, intelligent use of technology to your manufacturing systems, uh, you know, the industry, industry 4.0 is and will be a revolution for, uh, for a lot of folks. Yeah, I think it's a great answer. I particularly like how you talk about, you, you know, I, I'm also with you in that industry three, 3.0 versus 4.0. Like, where is that line? Is there a line? Like, how do you draw it? And I think a lot of that, too, is that, you know, when you think about industry 3.0, a lot of that was applying computerization to automation, right, and and, and manufacturing. But the jump from even like personal computers, what was purely computing to what is today a supercomputer in our pockets with screens and interactions and that goes out to the internet and comes back and things like that. Is that just an extension of a computer and what that's become today? Or is it its own new thing with the internet and all that, right? So the same question that we would have around is your, what's the level of revolution between your old compact desktop tower and your, or the ENIAC, you know, <laughs> and your modern day cell phone is, is, is uh, applies just as much to industry 4.0, right? Yeah, I, I think if, if you think about it from a standardization of technology, I think that plays a big piece of it as well is, you know, mm -hmm. you, you talk about, hey, my, my supercomputer in my pocket. Well, obviously, computing power has gone up quite a bit, but it's also, I mean, I, I remember MNN files and data highway and half slot addressing and all the complication that you used to have to go through to make something talk to something else and all of the, uh, you know, all of the intricacies in engineering to make technologies that were never really intended to be interoperable to be interoperable. And when you look at, you know, some of the standards that have been developed, some of the, the communication methods and, and how uh, open architectures have really kind of become prevalent inside of the industry, all that stuff's a lot easier to do now. And with, you know, the prevalence of, of high-speed internet, 5G coming in to be a big thing, the ability to have connected systems is absolutely easy by, yeah. by you know, the standard of, of 15 or 20 years ago. Totally. And, and you're right. So let's, let's, you know, assume that that argument is done. Yes, we are in an industry 4.0. Yes, all of this new connectivity and the way that we can kind of do actually similar to the way that you talked about being able to use offsite power in one of the earlier industrial revolutions. Now we're using offsite compute, right? And 4.IR is really kind of, I think, at the leading edge of that because you guys are all driving ways that we can be using the internet, using the cloud to uh, make manufacturing operations more efficient. So so tell me more about like 4IR and specifically what you guys are doing and how you fit into that industry 4.0 picture. Yeah. So, uh, you know, the the genesis of 4IR, I think, was was really having gone through what I'll call the virtualization revolution, because you know, we can't have enough yeah. revolutions. Um, where <laughs> where, you know, early on days I I recall uh, dealing with customers and having bare metal servers and 
you know, server dies, image doesn't work on the next version. And, and really, you know, there being a grassroots push for uh, the use of virtualization from integration companies. And, and I know I was one of the, the, the people out behind pushing as hard as I could because it made it more flexible. It made it easier. It made it faster to deploy. It made it more portable. Uh, it was it was just a really good technology for the time. Um, at that point, though, there was really no uh, support from the vendors. Uh, so you know, we we had vendors that we would call up for support and they'd ask if it was installed in the virtual machine and then say, no, you have to install it on bare metal before we'll talk to you. Um, but also there was really no push or, or pull really from the corporate side to do anything about it. So it became this, you know, 10, 12, 15 year journey before it became the de facto way everything was done. And, and that's the de facto way things are done in factories today. What's different now and what's different about cloud is that there is a, uh, a noted desire from the corporate entities for industrial data. It's a part of the business. It's a part of the modeling and part of the value. And, and there's a huge amount of opportunity in that information, especially when you connect it with marketing data, when you connect it with finance data and other supply chain data. There's a ton of value in there, and unfortunately, the systems weren't really designed to provide contextual information in an easy-to-consume format. So, number one is all that data processing and 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 all that those inferences and and analyses that are being done are typically being done in the cloud because most major organizations has have had switched to a cloud-first strategy years ago. Um, and so they're coming to the plant floor going, okay, where is it? How do I get it? And what we're seeing is a lot of point solutions coming in. So, you know, folks going, yeah, we can put this, this device in and we'll just ingest this piece of information we need for your ammonia system or this piece of information we need to, you know, optimize your, your HVAC. And, and it, unfortunately, it doesn't solve the, what the manufacturer's problem is, which is, you know, how can I intelligently provide the data? How can I use the, how can I sensibly take the parts of the cloud that are of value and are smart for me to use, be able to provide this data, but also, you know, unload some of the things inside of my factory that are just difficult for me to manage. So things like backups, that's a super low hanging fruit, you know, taking tape drives down to the bank vault shouldn't really be a thing we do anymore, but it happens. Um, yeah. You know, there's other there's I mean, there's a million different examples, but conceptually, you know, being able to carve out what makes the most sense from an operational perspective and be able to, you know, reduce the amount of labor that I need and be able to reduce the complexity of what I'm operating inside of my factory while still getting world class features and data that can be ingested and processed and provide me insights and feedback as to how to improve my business. All of that is is a function of of the cloud. Yeah, I, I totally agree with all of that. And uh, I might uh, ask for like a specific. So so I think that intuitively we all understand like, yes, the idea of being able to interoperate all of that data is valuable. And what I have for my supply chain, plus my customer orders, plus my quality feedback, plus my manufacturing data, it seems like a lot of these can solve a lot of problems. Do you have any examples of times that you have seen manufacturers kind of take all of that data and a common source in the cloud and use that to really improve their business? It, it's actually a very challenging question because there's a lot of folks who I, I would say the biggest use case that I've seen so far has been for predictive maintenance um, mm -hmm. and predictive maintenance really unfortunately doesn't 
doesn't fit that story you just described, which is tying together all sorts of other useful information from other places. Uh, it's really a, you know, looking at, at you know, specifically the, the hardware and the, the machinery that's operating and using models to make determinations for, for failure mode. Um, mm -hmm. So that's probably the biggest use case we've seen so far. Um, the the holy grail of applying deep learning to you know an, a, a massive data set and coming up with all sorts of inferences that humans can't um that i haven't seen yet um i've seen lots of people try um but it, <laughs> but it's it's i think it's it's kind of the holy grail but i think there's there's a longer journey we need to go on around you know just just optimization first and and mm -hmm. providing information first and then using um you know, using the power of computing to, to figure out, you know, over time what to do with it. Yeah, well, and, and I actually really appreciate that answer, too, right? Because kind of going back to what you were saying around, you know, is Industry 4.0 getting over-marketed kind of more than what it, it actually is and what it can actually deliver, right? And I do think we, we hear there's a lot of stuff and it's hard to see what's out there around, like, what is an idea of what we can actually do with Industry So, sorry, what's an idea of what we can do with Industry 4.0 versus what is kind of a actual use case that has been done and we have actual cases behind it and we've done it seven times and now you're going to do it you know the eighth versus a this is theoretically something we could do i sure hope someone calls me about it you know <laughs> I, yeah, I mean practical pragmatic problem solving has always been kind of my my modus operandi and, and unfortunately mm -hmm. it, it's you know a lot of the the bill of goods that's being sold to manufacturers is is impractical so mm -hmm. here, here's an example of something practical that we've tried to solve is Perfect. it's really hard to keep your plant floor systems up to date operating systems patches you know just just making sure that when some security issue comes up or there's some sort of an update to software that needs to happen it's difficult to do that because you have to run it through a risk-based process to analyze what do i have to do what sort of changes does it mean to the application what sort of downtime might i have how am i going to test this without actually being without actually disrupting production what do i do if something fails how do i roll it back so you know really if you look at what 4ir one of the primary things we're trying to solve for is we know that's a hard problem and by standardizing the way that you deploy in in, in this case these applications or ignition and is kind of the first one we have um we we handle that for the end users so they don't have to have the labor or the skill to be able to to understand how to do that because we provide that as a function and and unfortunately it's you know a lot of folks don't realize how big of a problem that is until they get hit with ransomware or until they have you know a major security issue but unfortunately it happens a lot more often these days than it used to because you know ransomware the biggest target for ransomware right now is manufacturing 28% of all well, ransomware attacks Hmm. I didn't know that actually. That's a cool, that's a cool stat. And, but like what you're saying totally resonates to me. Like I've seen this too, right? I've done project, like, I think that people, especially if you're not like as familiar with manufacturing and the way that that works, you know, there is a big resistance a lot of times to actually keeping your systems up to date with the latest patches and everything, right? Everything is seen as a change that could interrupt your production. And the second you stop producing, you stop making money, right? But you're right. There is all of this proactive stuff from security to getting the latest bugs fixed and things like that that are really important. Even from like a licensing and support standpoint, I've seen people go out of their support contracts on some of this uh, update maintenance software, and it costs hundreds of thousands of dollars to get back into compliance with that, right? Yep. So I'm totally with you. It's funny. It's a it's not the it's not the use case that people see on the internet and they're like, oh my gosh, what an excellent application of Industry 4.0. I can't wait to have all of my systems up to date and patched properly. But it's really important. <laughs> <laughs> well, and and like. 
like you you know when you describe it as as patched properly and up to date to the moment that's actually not even the problem like most most systems that are compromised you know they're not behind like by a month they're behind by years I mean, yeah. when not when not Petra ran through and and knocked out so many major organizations a few years back, m- most of I, there was a patch available for that over a year before it ran through the those organizations. Mm-hmm. So you know, when it, when it comes to the risk based pro, you know process that you follow, I, I I highly encourage everyone to 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 invest time and energy in this because I think it's hugely important. Um, but we also recognize that the skill sets and the people which. I was actually a little surprised because I, I watched the um, I watched the the keynote for the Aviva conference and for the automation fair last week, and both kind of said the same thing that you know labor is actually one of the biggest bar- barriers to uh, to Industry 4.0 right now and digitalization. And uh, you know, I, it it surprised me because I feel like the the you know the enablement of people and the the drive of of you know what digitalization promises makes makes lives easier and is it purely just a labor shortage not enough heads going around or is there a you know is there something else around skill that that's missing inside of uh, inside of manufacturers today that you know is is a long term and a and a bigger problem I, yeah i don't i don't know the answer to that unfortunately yeah, but but let's see how you might be able to help a little bit because uh, it actually it's actually come up it's come up a couple of times this season, um, and I do think that just labor is kind of hot on everyone's minds these days. But so so we might not have all the solutions for how to train this new labor force, but at least we can kind of give an idea of of where the market might be by the time that team is trained. So like again, like it doesn't make sense to train everybody for what we're doing right now. By the time they learn it, they're all going to be too late. So if you look forward three, four, five years into the future, what other technologies in that industry 4.0 domain are you seeing really pick up that if you were going to get some people some training, this is what I'd kind of have them focus on today? Yeah. So um, from a from an operational perspective, like like factory floor workers, they need to be, you know, mobile friendly. They need to understand databases. They need to understand reporting. They need to understand how to how to manipulate and relate data and and use that information to make decisions. Uh, Some of that comes into the tools that they use. um, But but fundamentally, you know, the the concept of continuous improvement and, and, you know, data matters there. From a, a practitioner perspective, a you know a systems integration or or technical resources, um, the the use of orchestration I think is something that's going to become really really important. Um, so if you think about you know switching from the concept of virtual machines to uh, containerized applications or serverless applications, these are cloud native and cloud friendly technologies. And once mm-hmm. you once you convert your applications to work in this way, you can use orchestration to deploy, manage, uh, and and heal when something goes wrong with these systems so that the burden of management gets less and less on your IT systems. It's also mm-hmm. a totally different way to do development. It's a totally different way to think about how things are are built. And honestly, we're we're waiting right now. There's there's not a ton of industrial software vendors who really offer, you know, Docker container based versions of their software that are fully supported. Um, that's the biggest reason, you know, and inductive is, is ahead of the game in that regard. And certainly we've, we've, we've hitched our wagon there because we, we feel confident that they've got a, a really strong solution and a, a roadmap that, 
you know, really improves on some of the the opportunities that still exist in the platform and, and makes it into a really compelling on-prem and in-cloud option. Um, yeah, good. Um, could you maybe, I'm curious. So I feel like a lot of people, myself included, honestly, are probably more familiar with kind of that virtualization background, right? If you're, if you're still like mostly experted in metal servers and things like that, there's probably a pretty big catch up to do there. But if you're kind of more from that VM era, can you kind of describe to me like what containers are and how they provide value kind of in that manufacturing industrial space? Yeah, it, it's so a virtual machine and I'll, I'll do the best definition I can without looking up cheat notes here. Um, <laughs> so a virtual machine really duplicates all of the parts of a computer and software. So the RAM, the CPU, and a full operating system. Um, mm-hmm. Now, you don't actually need a full operating system to operate most uh, most applications. So in a containerized environment, what you're doing is you're actually minimizing the amount of custom operating system that you install to be just what's required to run an application. So if you think about, you know, olden days, if I was going to set up a, a web server, I would have, you know, PHP installed and I put MySQL on the box and, and you know, maybe Apache for my server. And I have a bunch of different things all living on a server that are providing that function for me. But I also have, because it's a, you know, it's a build of Linux or a build of Windows. I also have a bunch of other stuff on there. So, you know, command line stuff and, um, you know, different, different functions of the shell, maybe some file sharing stuff, stuff that Mm -hmm. isn't explicitly necessary to run those applications. Solitaire. Solitaire. Well, yeah. yeah. So, (laughs) so, and you think about it from a, you know, from a security perspective is now I've got all these, I've got multiple applications running on there. I have multiple services available. I have a bunch of services on that, that I don't really need to make this happen. Um, and so what you've done is you've made a more complex uh, virtual machine to do this function than it needs to be. And you've created a, a surface area for attack that's larger than it needs to be. Mm. So with a container, what you're doing is the operating system is absolutely minimal for what's required for operating that function. So in the case of the same server you set up with containers, there would be a container for the PHP, there'd be a container for the Apache, there'd be a container for the MySQL database. They would all communicate to each other over the network and, and kind of back and forth. They'd all have their own security set up, but there's no extra services on it. And, and one of the things that, that happens with, with containers when they're designed correctly is that they're configured with files um, mm-hmm. so that, you know, if something goes wrong with the container, and this, this is what orchestration adds to the, to, to the party, is if something goes wrong with a container, you simply throw it away and put a new one in place and reload the configuration to it. So, mm-hmm. you know, you, you, what you end up having is a digitally signed container that can't possibly be changed. Mm, and okay. it, it operates using an orchestration engine, which makes sure that it's running all the way it's supposed to at all times. Uh, and you've you've minimized the amount of surface area for uh, for attack that you have because you're only running what's absolutely necessary to run that particular application. Mm-hmm. No, that makes a lot of sense. And it is. It's this just the next. I remember it being like such a lift and like a lot of new concepts getting introduced as virtualization came along, right? This just seems like a natural evolution of, of what we've seen before, just of kind of breaking things into more modular pieces. And yeah, there's a new lexicon that comes along with it. But like everything you said makes a lot of sense. They're just smaller building blocks that you're kind of managing more tightly and uh, being able to deploy those programmatically. Makes a lot of sense. Cool. Yeah. And, and and you think about deploying programmatically, there's, there's you know, there's, there's some folks out there who are now running running controllers as uh, Docker containers. 
I've seen that. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, so when you think about kind of the hardware you need to run to to run a DCS or run a PLC, there's there's now new options out there that that potentially you can use orchestration to operate those controllers, um, yeah. which is which is pretty wild. But I mean, the the future is that I think we're gonna we're gonna have more and more of that stuff um move to to that kind of an architecture and it's gonna create uh it's gonna make things a lot more scalable, a lot more flexible, um, and a lot more secure. Cool. Well, hey, thanks for going into that uh, deep with me, James. I know um, I, I think a lot of people probably do have questions about it. A lot of them probably heard containers, heard Docker, but I think we're still getting more people educated about it. So thanks for kind of going into that with me um, to kind of shift a little bit and start to close out. So uh, I think that, you know, one of the things we do on this podcast is we ask guests to give questions for future guests. And I have one for you up here, too. So this one's kind of around change management. People were asking around how do you suggest solving the change management problem that is attached to Industry 4.0 projects from people, technology, processors, just so much change to manage? Do you have any recommendations for how people uh, start to approach that? Oh, that's it. That, that's I mean, that's a super, super difficult challenge because it's so multifaceted, right? It's yeah. it's. It, it's that combination of people, process, and technologies that are all required, and everyone requires attention. I, I, I think the concept of a center of excellence, which is multidisciplinary and has, you know, the the ability to make and execute decisions is absolutely necessary for your digitalization goals to be able to move forward. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they've got to be connected to their parts of the organization, whether it's quality or operations or, or it, but they've also got to be empowered to actually make and push decisions forward. You know, it's such a, it's such a wide and big problem because it's everything from, you know, operator training to, you know, the way we go about procuring hardware to the way we go about, you know, uh, implementing change in facilities and who owns the P and L. And I, you know, it's going to be a little bit different for every company, but that's why you need that multidisciplinary team to, mm-hmm. to really be responsible for doing that or else, you know, the, they'll constantly just run into brick walls and, you know, eventually give up. Yeah, for sure. I, um, you're, you're making me think about it and I, I can't think of many industry four O digital transformation journeys I've seen be successful without a center of excellence. It doesn't mean that everybody who has a center of excellence is successful. But those who have been successful usually have that team of champions that is really driving things forward. That is really their goal. They're kind of focused on it every day. Yeah. So so good, good tip for sure. And you're right. It's such a big area of change management that it kind of shows that's just one of many things that you need kind of this dedicated team for. So, yeah, great answer. And then anything that you kind of want me to ask for for our next guest? What do you want to know about Industry 4.0, James? Oh, boy, this is... Uh... This this is an interesting one. I uh, I, I guess I, I would kind of lean back again on on the the cloud part of this is, um, and and really my question is for I don't know who your next person is going to be, and I apologize if they're not not plant floor uh, centric, but we'll take it to someone else then. Don't worry about it. We got plenty. Of I, this, yeah. I am I am curious uh, how important edge is as a part of these architectures. Ooh, because I I'm I'm trying to figure out what is the you know what is the magical formula that will that will you know push and drive industry 4.0 for manufacturers edge is obviously a part of this architecture it it's maybe a stepping stone on the on the road but i i'm i'm curious kind of what everyone thinks and where everyone's at in their in their mindset around edge Cool. Yeah, that's uh, I'm I'm curious myself. I'm I'll be happy to ask that one for you. Cool. Uh, well, hey, 
Thanks, James. This is a really great conversation. I really appreciate you being able to join us on the podcast. Um, is there anything else kind of in general that's going on with 4IR Solutions that you want to share with our, our audience? Uh, yeah, we got some uh, got some exciting, exciting stuff coming up. So, uh, you know, it may have already been announced by the time this recording hits the uh, hits the mainstream, but uh, we're working with inductive automation on the uh, designation of solutions partner. Uh, we're really excited. We've been working in concert with them for a long, long time, and this just solidifies our our position with them. Um, yeah, and and we're we're hoping to see folks uh, at at ARC this year. We're uh, we're going to be presenting with um, with Cameco as a part of uh, as a part of our sustainability uh, discussions. So uh, yeah, we're we're excited for uh, to meet more folks. Awesome, and uh, congratulations! Hopefully, on the the, the IA inductive solutions partner uh, agreement. That's really really great. So. Um, cool. Well, hey, thank you, James. Really appreciate you being on today. And thank you, everybody, for, for listening in today. Remember, we would love to hear from you. So uh, do please uh, follow Grant Tech on LinkedIn to stay up to date with everything that we're doing. Subscribe to the Industry 4.0 podcast with Grant Tech on any of those services where you get your podcast today. And you can always email any questions, feedback uh, to info at grantech.com. And please do join us next time on the Industry 4.0 podcast with Grant Tech. Thanks again, James. Great conversation. Thanks, Sam. See ya.